Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nason, and Nason the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, Westside. We are glad that you're here. And could we just for a moment pause and acknowledge that Tyler just ran through that list of names like a champ, okay? The spirit is well with him on that, man. You're like, a list of names? What is that about? Well, just hold on. And if you felt the tension in the video, that's the point. Um, we are in our Advent series called So This Is Christmas. And Advent prepares us for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And what we're acknowledging is the tangible tension that is in the world today. That all of a sudden, now that it's December, we're just, you know, supposed to drink hot cocoa and sing and wrap presents and everything's okay. And it feels weird in light of the division and everything that's taken place in 2020 and the amount of change. And, and the overarching thing is kind of like, so, so this is Christmas, right? And the answer is yes. And what we've done every week is we're asking this honest question. We're being honest this Christmas. And as we learn about Christmas being the arrival of Jesus Christ, we learned last week um, this idea of the incarnation, that with the lights and the presents and the holly jolly Christmas, there's some serious Bible doctrine that we're learning, uh, serious truths of Scripture that God put on human flesh. That's called the incarnation and we asked God, why would God want to come here 
amidst the brokenness and the disease and the despair and I mean, like, I'm all for going to where God is, amen? But we see the opposite in, in the Christmas story, that, that God comes here. And what Advent does is it prepares our heart and mind to live in that tension for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And last week we learned and answered this question from Isaiah 6 and looking at the Christmas narrative. Why would God want to come here? Well, firstly, to reveal His glory that we learn that God's glory is what we were made for, and that glory is found nowhere else as as full as the person of Jesus Christ. That if we want to know what God is like, who God the Father is like, we look to the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what's so phenomenal about Christmas. And, and, and this week, maybe to sort of set us up where we just read like a scene from Ancestry.com from Matthew chapter 1. You're like, what is going on here, okay? Maybe this will help set us up. Um, my wife and I, over the past couple of years, have become obsessed with this Netflix TV show called The Crown, okay? So The Crown is about Queen Elizabeth, who, by the way, is still alive and older than Methuselah, all right? This lady is the longest ruling monarch in history that we know of. I mean, she sat in the room with Winston Churchill, all of this stuff, ruled through the World War. I mean, it's incredible when you look at the history of Queen Elizabeth. And what The Crown does is it follows scenes from her life, and it's based on a lot of historical accounts. And in season four, you're introduced to Margaret Thatcher and then Princess Diana comes into the family and all the drama and everything like that. Well, what's really cool about season four is episode seven is called The Hereditary Principle. Now, it follows Princess Margaret, okay? So Princess Margaret, historically and especially in the show, has never really known her place in history because her sister's the queen, okay? Like the queen of England, God save the queen, like, and she's a princess, like a real life princess. So her days consist of putting on these princess gowns and going to tea party after dinner party after ball after all of this stuff. And it shows her struggle in finding her identity. And in episode 7, it shows her struggling with some mental health issues. And so she starts asking questions about her family. And one of the things that, that, that we don't really know about or appreciate a lot about here in the U.S., because we haven't had a king or a crown since 1776, amen, America, right? Okay, but back then, the crown you traced through your genealogy. So it's all about bloodline and the order of birth. Like, if you're born second, sorry about it. You're second, okay? Second is first loser, all right? The firstborn is going to be the king or the queen. That's just the way it happens. And what she starts finding out about is that on her mother's side, that there are cousins that nobody speaks about. And so in the episode, she starts asking questions, and then she asks her sister, the queen, do you know about our mother's cousins? And she goes, oh, yes, 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 but, but they died, and there's this scene in the episode where they go to the royal genealogy and pull these big books off the shelf. And Queen Elizabeth goes, see, right here. You see right here, they died. Well, Margaret starts asking more questions. And by the way, this is all true. I got so obsessed with about this this week. Like I had like red strings. Like there's, there's great rumors that Queen Elizabeth isn't the real queen. I don't know about any of that. But there's this scene where you find out that Queen Elizabeth on her mother's side had two cousins, and the two cousins are Catherine Bowles Lyon and Nerissa Bowles Lyon. 
and they were committed to a mental institution. And back in the day, if there were mental health issues or anything like that, it is a brutal history to see that. So because, now remember, because this is a royal bloodline, this is royalty. We can't have any blemishes in the bloodline. So what we know recorded in history is that those two individuals were issued a death certificate and considered legally dead in order to hide them away from the bloodline to cause any types of controversy. What's so sad is they don't even have a headstone. It was a plastic bag cut out in a cross to put there. And you're like, good, that is awful. That is horrible to hide someone away like that. That's No, I want you to see that worldly understanding of royalty. And now look at Matthew chapter 1. You see, in Matthew chapter 1, there's no hiding anything away. We see the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Literally, we see the hereditary aspect of the royalty of the Son of God. And when you look at this Ancestry.com, Matthew chapter 1, there is some crazy stuff that's going on here. I mean, one of the things that I'm finding out more and more as I study the Christmas story is the Christmas story is a, not like a Hallmark movie and a lot more like a Jerry Springer episode. Like, Joseph, you are not the father. <gasps> oh my, I mean, like it's, there's crazy stuff that's going on, and we see that in Matthew chapter 1. And when I saw that and watched that episode, I thought, well, that's the way the world would have it. Hide away any controversy, hide away any blemishes, and present this perfect royal picture of yourself. And we see a God who enters in through human history, who doesn't hide any blemishes, who doesn't try to cover things up. But in the mess of Matthew chapter 1, we see that God enters in directly through that brokenness. So as we ask the question, why would God want to come here? What we see through Matthew chapter 1 is going all the way back to Abraham is this entering into broken families. And by the way, um, rest assured, okay, um, all families are crazy. Oh, no, amen. I'll give you another go at that, okay? All families got a little bit of crazy in them, okay? Amen. And if you don't have a little crazy in your family, you married into crazy, okay? All right, so I'm just saying. Matthew chapter 1 should be a great comfort to us because we see all this brokenness in these families, which when we look at the storyline of the Bible going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, do you know the first thing that the enemy attacked in God's creation? Is Satan came and attacked a marriage. Adam and Eve husband and wife. And then we see through their offspring the first murder happened. I mean, families have been broken ever since Genesis chapter 3. And then God comes in the brokenness. Why would God want to come here today? This is how we're going to answer that question to restore his creation. I mean, Matthew chapter 1 is about restoration amidst brokenness, amidst sinners amidst a bloodline that has a lot of blemishes in it, but God enters in through all of that. And there's some things that we need to know about Matthew 1 in the context, okay? 
Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, okay? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are like little biographies of Jesus' life. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. Mark writes to the Romans. Luke writes to Gentiles. And John writes to another Jewish audience. But the reason why this is important is because um, you are Jew by ethnicity, being born into that. And so in order for a Messiah to come, we see all in the scriptures, it has to be in the Jewish bloodline. So that's why Matthew takes time. Luke also shows Jesus' genealogy. Luke's a doctor, and he takes it all the way back to Adam. Like, I mean, he just nails everybody in that bloodline. Matthew stays with the Jewish ethnicity of it. In this genealogy, there are 46 names. 46 names spanning 14 generations. And if you read it, it says, starts with Abraham, goes to David. From David, it goes to the deportation to Babylon, and from Babylon to Jesus. It's three sets of 14. Now, the reason why that's important is because there's a cadence to it. If you read it in the King James, the old King Jimmy, it's the begat, begat, and then he begat, and then he begat. And a lot of scholars believe the reason why is because... Um, Christianity started out as an oral tradition. And so when you were learning this, it wasn't like in the beginning you opened up your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew back in the first century. A lot of scholars believe the reason why there's a cadence to this, it was so it was sort of set to a song for children to learn and know. That's how important this genealogy is. And the time span is about 2,000 years as we look at this. That's the context of Matthew chapter 1. And you say, Jason, I mean, this is a list of names, a genealogy. Why in the world would we spend time, A, reading every single one of those names out loud in church? Um, well, A, I mean, could you imagine if you were in Jesus' genealogy? I'd, like, I'd want my name read out loud on a Sunday, okay? But there's biblical reasons for this. Paul tells Timothy to give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's why we read the Bible out loud on a Sunday morning. But also this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out, even a list of names, that even from a list of names, God has inspired those names, that it be profitable, good for you, that we can learn from it for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Here's what I'm saying. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is just as inspired as Jeremiah 29, 11. Matthew chapter 1 is just as inspired as John 3, 16. And we're going to take some time to learn this and look at this as to how this God in order to restore broken creation, enters into the broken creation. And what do we see? The first thing that I see is this. It's restoration through new beginnings. I mean, look at the words. The book of the genealogy. One, two, three, four. The fifth word, it should tell us right there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the original language, um, that word genealogy is the word Genesis. That's, that's the etymology of a genealogy. It means the beginning of something. Now, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew's Jewish audience would have absolutely known this play on words, what he's doing. I mean, this takes us back. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of Genesis 2. They, these are the generations, the genesis 
of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. You say, Jason, what does this mean? Well, listen, we can all agree that um, the creation of the cosmos is pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. In the beginning, God said, and then there it was, and then he speaks, and there's this creation. And we see that everything that our eyes see that God has created, a powerful moment in Scripture, that everything else flows from that beginning. But now, Matthew is saying that there's a new beginning, that there's a new Genesis, and that this list of names is just as powerful as Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That, listen... The Jewish people would have understood their story that this God who created everything and spoke and created us in his image and likeness and that the story is also this loving God coming to people created in his image and likeness saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. But these people always strain always wandering away. It's always a golden calf here. This person did that. And then God having to raise up somebody to save them. And that's constantly Israel's story over and over and over again. But listen, that's not just Israel's story. That's my story. That's your story. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it for thy courts above. How often is it in your life that God shows himself to be God and he comes to you and we're on the mountaintop high and then we see ourselves wondering after things of this world and then God intervening back into our life. Here's what I'm saying. Matthew chapter 1 shows us that this is a new beginning. And no matter what your last name is, no matter what you've done, no matter how far that you think that you have strayed, the message of Christmas and the message of Advent is that in Jesus Christ you have new beginnings. That you have new beginnings. And do you know what this is like? And just please humor me for a minute. This is just the way my mind works. That Israel had this story and it was filled with mistakes and sins and transgressions because Israel was defined by their story. And you see, a lot of us think that we're defined by our story as well. Maybe your family story, maybe something that was done to you, maybe the heartache, maybe the unforgiveness, no matter what. You think that you're defined either by what you've done or what's been done to you, that you're defined by your story. Well, what God does is, with this story, is he treats it like an etch-a-sketch, right? I mean, think about this, right? By the way, did you know that there's a toy hall of fame? I had no idea. And that an etch-a-sketch is in the toy hall of fame. Did you know that the moment the etch-a-sketch was released, it's had zero updates to it? <laughs> it is the same toy that was released in like 1970-something, okay? Isn't that awesome? No Apple updates on the old etch-a-sketch, right? And I love when my kids are playing with an Etch-a-Sketch and they set it down, they always say this, and especially Andy Grace, dad, 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 don't bump it. Don't bump it. Don't bump it, right? Don't shake it, because what happens when you shake it? It goes away. And a lot of us thought that we were defined by the story that was written either for us or that we wrote ourselves. And listen to me, what we see in this genealogy in Jesus Christ is God comes along in your life and he shakes up the story. And it's new beginnings. Listen, I come bearing good news of great joy today. That you're not defined by this old story, but that, but that in Jesus Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. No matter what has happened to you, in Jesus, there is a new genesis. That there's a new beginning. That's restoration.
The second thing that I see is this, that it's restoration through promises made and promises kept. We say this every Advent. I'm going to say it every Advent, that what we see at Christmas time is we know this, that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And we see it in this, the very first or the very second verse, the first names listed. Abraham was the father of Jacob. You got to know about Abraham. We see his story back at the beginning of Genesis that he's Abram, that he's just this pagan man worshiping pagan gods in modern day Iraq. And then God comes to Abraham and makes this promise. Listen, God chooses Abraham not because Abraham was obeying all the rules and kept all the Ten Commandments and read his Bible every day and had his quiet time, did the Jesus storybook Bible, all of that. That's not. Why? God comes to Abraham because God is gracious and kind and says these words, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I saw this this week. Have you ever wondered why God blesses us? Why does God bless us? I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. The blessing is never about you. It's about you being a conduit of that blessing. And so God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You know what's crazy about this? Abraham's old, like old, old, old. And so Sarah. And God comes to them and says, well, I'm going to give you a child. And then later on, God says this, I will establish my covenant. There it is. You see, the world operates off contracts. Your AT&T, the bank, your, I mean, everything operates off contracts. It's services and goods. That if you do this, then your cell phone company will do this. If you pay this bill at the beginning of every month, we will keep your phone on. That's a contract. What happens when you don't pay that bill at the first of the month? You ain't got no cell phone. Can you hear me now? No, I cannot because your phone is off because you didn't pay it. Okay, that is a contract. It is based upon performance. The God of the Bible doesn't operate off contracts. The God of the Bible operates off a covenant. You know what a covenant is? It's based not off performance, but off a promise. You see, this God enters into relationship with his creation saying, this whole thing's one-sided. This whole thing's on my end, not your end. And this covenant will be between me and you and your offspring. And after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring and after you. And we see that this is the promise carried on all through Israel's story that God is going to send a Messiah, a promise through this great nation. What does this mean? Well, listen, I have good news. Um, God is batting a thousand on all of his promises. That's what we said about Advent. That Advent, we look back to see all the promises that God has made and we see how they came true in Jesus Christ. So... If God is true about the promise that he made about Jesus coming, and we celebrate that every year, do you know what we do also this time of year? We don't just look back. We also look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So if God was faithful to this promise, then that tells me this, that God will be faithful to this last promise in Revelation 22:20, 20, when he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. 
And what's our response to that? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Listen, here's what I've come to tell you. That some of us have been praying and asking God to fulfill these promises that he's made in his word. Maybe it's for your children, for your grandchildren, for your marriage, for your health. I don't know what the promise is that you're pleading, but I know this. I know that we can learn from what Jesus told us. That Jesus said in order to enter into the kingdom of God, that you need to be like children. Because anybody that enters into the kingdom of God has a childlike faith. Now, not childish. Some of y'all in here are childish, and that's a different sermon, okay? It's childlike. And do you know what children are like when it comes to promises? If you're a parent, and maybe you can relate to this, you know, maybe you're buckling the car seat, and you've got the groceries, and now the dog's gotten out of the fence, and, and you're about to lose your salvation. I mean, there's a moment where you're like, I don't know, if, if this moment determines whether I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to heaven. Like, I, I'm about to snap out on everybody, and then it's in the summer, and you're in a parking lot, and all the heat's coming off the asphalt, and the thing won't snap, and then you're, oh my goodness, grace, right? And then kids love to ask you for things in that moment. So you're trying to do all that, and they're like, um, Dad, can we build a rocket ship? And so, listen, you're probably way more saved than me, and you're like, well, we don't ever make promises to our kids that we can't fulfill in the moment. Okay, well, I do. All right, all right, I'm sorry. And so what I say is like, yeah, sure, that sounds great, or maybe, okay? And what Roman always, is, Roman always says, Dad said maybe, that means yes, right? But listen, they don't ever bring it up anymore until when? Bedtime. Listen, there's never anybody more thirsty than a kid at bed, okay? So it's bedtime, and now they're all thirsty, and their pajamas can't go on, and they're doing all the stuff, and you're tucking them in, right? You're tucking them in, and it's bedtime, and you say, amen, and what, what does he say? Hey, remember, we could build the rocket ship, right? Now listen, Jesus says, anybody to enter in the kingdom of God must be like a child. Children know how to plead promises, Children know how to hold their parents to a promise made. And I think it would do well for some of us to encourage our hearts to plead these promises of God back to Him and say, God, you promise these things. And God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. But with these promises comes something, right? Because there's a lot of generations here, which is the third thing that I see. It's restoration that comes through worshipful waiting. Worshipful waiting. Because look at what we see in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's the three sets of 14. That's over 2,000 years of waiting for a promise. And what we see through all of these pages of Scripture is God promising and promising and promising. And do you know, right to the left of Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bible with you, there's this blank page. Do you see this blank page in your Bible? It says on the other side, the New Testament. When you turn to the other side, it's the book of Malachi. What we call this is the intertestimonial period. Do you know how many years this is of silence? No revelation from God. No, thus saith the Lord, no prophet. 400 years of silence for them to live off of the past promises of God. But what we see is that they viewed waiting not as a waste. That's how we view waiting. 
Like Amazon Prime's not fast enough for us. So I always check on the package. It's always an earth city. You're like, what? And then it's on your doorstep, right? You just have no idea, and there it is. You're just, you're waiting on something. Or it's in the doctor's office. You're waiting on the phone call, the job interview. You know, waiting reveals a lot about who we are, about what we love. And what we think is that waiting is a waste, that the end game is the thing we're waiting on. That's the point. Wrong. What we see in Scripture is that the process is the point, not just the thing that you're waiting for. I love the way that one author put it. He put it this way. Waiting is not just the thing we have to do until we get what we hope for. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what we've hoped for. What we become as we wait is at least as important as the thing itself that we wait for. To wait in hope is not just to pass the time until the wait is over. It is to see the time passing as part of the process God is using to make us into the people he created us to be. So some of us are waiting on a family member to come to Christ or even our spouse. Some of us are married to unbelievers and, and we're praying to God and we're waiting, God, change my spouse. And in the reality, the question is, well, what is God doing in your heart? How is God changing you and molding and shaping you. Listen, these people were faithful that we see to the promise that God had made, and, prom and God keeps those promises as well. So please take heart in here. Some of you came in here, and if you were honest, if we were at a cup of coffee together, and it was just me and you, and nobody would know about the conversation, many of you in here feel like giving up. Like you're ready to throw in the towel in this whole thing. And what I've come to tell you today is don't give up. Keep pressing in and keep pleading the promises of God. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted that God is doing something in our lives. But the main thing that I see is this last thing, that it's restoration for broken people from broken people. Listen, this week I just sort of had a bit of a revelation that this is a list not of just the people that Jesus came from. This is a list of people that Jesus came for. There are 46 names on this list, and these people are bonkers. The butter has slid off their biscuit a long time ago, okay? And really what this is is 46 reasons why God can actually use you. I mean, when we look at the list of these people, just think about it. Abraham. Abraham lied a lot. That's why I put it on there, right? I mean, Abraham lied and said that his wife was his sister. Hey, guys, look up here. Bad move, okay? That's just weird, all right? Lied about a bunch of other stuff as well. Was a coward, passive. And then Jacob, that little weasel. That kid was a thief, man. Lying and stealing all the time. Getting the birth. I mean... Like, think about this. And then David, the man after God's own heart. Yeah, God said that about David because he knew David's heart. But David committed adultery and had a guy killed. That's Michael Corleone stuff, man. Took his wife, sent him to the front lines. I mean, when we look at this genealogy, God didn't hide anything. He didn't block anything out. It is a list full of broken people. And if you're reading through the list, there's something extremely shocking here. 
And ladies, this is a word for you. Matthew, in his genealogy, records the names of women, which, which back then, I mean, you were the father of so-and-so and the last name and carried all of that on. Matthew includes a whole list of women, which tells me this, that, that the Bible's value system is a lot different than the world's value system. Those who appear to be outcast or marginalized, God's always moving to that direction. God always places value on what the world devalues. But when you look at the list of these women, it is shocking to think. I mean, Tamar, back in the book of Genesis, Tamar acted like a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law out of desperation. Now, you could say she was a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law and all this stuff. But when you read this story, this woman was left widowed with no children. She was desperate. And yes, she did some crazy things but God includes the name. And then we see Rahab. Rahab was a woman of the night who helped the Israelite spies stay in their home and offered protection. God doesn't hide these names. And then we see Ruth, right? Ruth was a great example of faithfulness, has a whole book of the Bible, but she's not Jewish. She's Gentile, which is shocking to have that included. And then... Did you pick up on it? Bathsheba, her name's not even mentioned. It says, the wife of Uriah. You see, David was a king in Israel, and it says that in the springtime when kings go off to war, David stayed at home as a passive king, and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house, and he sent for her, and he laid with her, and then had her husband killed, and then fathered a child. And then later on, Solomon comes through. But you know what's interesting? I read the story different now. David abused his position of power. He lorded over a woman his position. And many scholars are in full agreement that Bathsheba was a victim of what David did. Why is that important to know? Jesus identifies himself with these people like me and like you. Jesus doesn't disassociate himself from either the sexually abused or the promiscuous or the outcast or the marginalized or people who think aren't valuable. Jesus doesn't move away. He moves towards those people because that's the whole point. It's restoration for broken people from that. And I love what Pastor Rich Viola says. He says these words, Jesus's genealogy reminds us that God's plans are bigger than any mess you've created or any mess that you've been dealt with in life. Out of our great mess comes the Messiah. The genealogy of Jesus clearly demonstrates that Jesus closely identifies with those who have sinned and those who have been sinned against. In these repeated words, we encounter a God who repeatedly attaches His life to ours out of grace. That is good news for us in here today. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've come from, listen, no matter what you think can't be fixed in your family and the horrible things that have taken place, it shows us in the mess of our own families that God works a miracle and works a Messiah to come through. 
So what does this look like? What does it look like someone who believes this radical um, restoration that God is making in his creation? What does this genealogy of grace do for our lives? Well, there's a great story that's told by uh, speaker and pastor Tony Campolo. I disagree with Tony on a number of issues, but Tony loves Jesus. And Tony tells this very famous story. Tony was speaking at a conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. And he said, you got to do the Lord's work, you know, go to Hawaii, right? And so he uh, flew out there, and the night before his conference, he had a horrible jet lag, and he could not sleep at all. So he went, walked around, and found a local diner. And he said the diner was run down. It was a shabby place. It was about 2 to 3 in the morning. Walked in. There was one cook, like, smoking a cigar, and his ashes were going in the omelet. Like, it was just, it was a sketchy place. So he, the cook said, do you want any food? And Tony was like, no, I don't want any food. I just want a cup of coffee. And Tony said that the guy wiped off his hand in order to get the coffee cup. And so he pours him a cup of coffee, and Tony's in there reading. He can't sleep. And a group of women come in. And they sit down, and they're striking up a conversation. And through some of the things that they said, Tony said it was very clear um, what these women did for a living. They were women of the night. And one of the women said, one of the younger ones, Andrea, said, um, tomorrow's my birthday. And the girls just sort of laughed with her and go, your birthday? Okay. What do you want, a day off in our line of work? And they were just sort of messing around with her. And she just said, ah, I don't know. I've just never had a party. You know, I've never even had a birthday cake. And the girls continued to poke fun at her. And they were like, well, honey, in this line of work, you ain't getting no birthday cake. And so they left. And Tony went up and talked to the cook, and he said, do you know those girls? And the cook goes, I do. They come in every night at this same time. And the cook got very defensive, and he said, hey, listen, um, those are good girls, and they've been handed a bad hand in life. And I know what you're probably thinking, but those are good girls. And Tony goes, hey, hey, listen, man, I'm just um, Andrea. And he goes, yes, I, I know Andrea. I've known her for a long time. And Tony goes, well, she said tomorrow's her birthday. Um, if they come in every night, how about this? What if I decorated the place and, and you made a birthday cake? Would that be cool? And Tony said the ash fell off the guy's cigar, and he was like, yeah, I can make the birthday cake. And he was like, oh, no, it's not going to be a good birthday cake. And the guy looked pretty shocked, and he said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So um, the next night at about 2 or 3 a.m., Tony said that every drug dealer and prostitute in Honolulu was at that diner, that they had spread the word all of Andrea's friends. And sure enough, the same time, Andrea comes in with her friends. They said, surprise, and the cook came out, and he had the cake. And they sang happy birthday. She didn't cry. She didn't do anything. She just looked shocked. And the cook said, cut the cake, Andrea, cut the cake. And she goes, no, no, I don't want to cut it. And he goes, Andrea, cut the cake. And she stopped and she began to weep. She said, hey, my mom just lives a couple doors down. Can I show her this birthday cake? I've never had a birthday cake in my life. And I just think she would think it's really cool. And so Andrea left and went to go show her mom the birthday cake. She was so proud. And when she left, he said there was like awkward silence in the room. And he had told uh, the cook that he was just a, a, like a motivational speaker and teacher. So when Andrea left, Tony was like, uh, let's pray for Andrea, guys. Let's pray. And everybody looked sort of kind of shocked. And so Tony prayed. And then Andrea came back and, and they started everything. And the cook came up to Tony and said, hey, you said you were a teacher or like a motivational speaker. You're a preacher, man. Tony goes, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am. 
And he goes, what kind of church do you preach at? And Tony stopped for a moment and he said, I preach at a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. And the cook stopped for a moment. His eyes welled up. He goes, no, you don't. Because if you did, I would go to that church. I've never heard of anything like that before. And Tony said right there in that moment, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and led that man to a saving knowledge of Jesus all because grace in the mess. In a broken genealogy, we see liars, thieves, cheats, the sexually immoral, murderers. We see you and we see me. So listen, this holiday season, I know that you're going to be around family, and I know that there's a lot going on in your life, if there's anything like there is in mine. But I've come to tell you this, that grace is a lot more powerful than any brokenness you've ever been handed in your life. And grace is a lot stronger than any sin that you've ever committed. And I've come to tell you that Jesus Christ doesn't move away from broken people. He moves close to them. And that grace, that grace changes everything. Why would God want to come here? to restore his broken creation. Westside, would you stand to your feet and let us pray how Jesus taught us to pray. Lift our voices. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Father God, we come before you and we see ourselves in this family tree. So grateful for this grace that doesn't move away from brokenness but rather moves in and changes everything. God, we see through these verses that you take broken pieces and make masterpieces, that in the mess comes a Messiah. And God, there's those of us in this room today, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, please move in this place, that our family is so broken, that our marriages are on the brink, that some of us feel so strapped down in this guilt and this sin and this shame and we feel like we're defined by this story that we've been handed but oh God may you come shake that story up and wipe it away and have new beginnings in the person of Jesus Christ God I pray that today through this message of grace that a family could forever be changed that maybe it's a phone call or maybe it's a text message to the person that we haven't talked to in years but our heart is so filled with that grace and that gratitude that we say hey and from that moment forward, the broken pieces start to mend. It's not going to be perfect. There's still going to be tension, God. We know that. But we're depending on you. We're depending on you to take these broken pieces and make a mosaic of a masterpiece. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.